last weekend, um, we, we did movie night as a family, and Summer and I had been talking about wanting to introduce uh, our kids to some of the classic movies that we grew up watching because, not necessarily because they're better, but because we grew up watching them, right? <laughs> uh, but we did, we landed on one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we landed on Pete's Dragon. Everybody remember Pete's Dragon? I hadn't seen that. I mean, no exaggeration. It's been decades since I've seen that. Uh, but I was surprised at the, the songs that as soon as they started, I was like, a dragon, a dragon. I swear I saw a dragon. And I don't remember the rest of the words. But the songs came back. But there was a song in it that I didn't remember that as soon as they started singing it, Summer and I just, we kind of looked at each other, and it was, it was one of those moments where we thought, this uh, this is a song for our, our moment right now. This is a song for us. Um, and it's a song called There's Room for Everyone in This World. Uh, and that, uh, that day that we were watching this movie was the day that we'd heard the, the news accounts of this shooting in Christchurch, New Zealand uh, by someone that was full of hate and uh, had these terrible white supremacist views that went in and, and did this atrocious thing. And then... So to have that in kind of the back of our minds, watching this children's movie, which you're just sort of expecting it's, you know, you don't expect it to intersect with the news at all. And all of a sudden there's this song that just speaks to the needs in our world and the needs in our hearts. And I just want to hear some of the lyrics of uh, uh, There's Room for Everyone. There's room for everyone in this world if everyone makes some room. Won't you move over and share this world? Everyone makes some room. And then it goes on and it sings about dragons, which uh, that doesn't really connect with the news as much. But this is how the song ends. There's room for everyone in this world. Will everyone make some room? Love given freely can spare this world. Let friendly feelings bloom. Just give an inch, give a yard, never flinch when time comes to offer a hand. So let's all make sure we give everyone somewhere to stand. So let's all make sure we give everywhere, everyone, somewhere to stand. Just the way God planned it. Just the way God planned it. Pete's Dragon. Go home and watch it. It's good. Um, I think what struck me in that moment, watching this with my kids, having this, uh, this memory of this terrible new event, um, was the way that this song celebrates hospitality and also expresses and understands that there is a cost to hospitality. Right? That if, every, if there's room for everyone in this world, that there's an implication for me to move a little bit. Right? What was the line again? There's room for everyone in this world if everyone makes some room. That connection between hospitality and generosity and welcome, that especially in light of uh, uh, the shooting and just uh, not just that, but lots of other events, um, seems so necessary, but to understand and connect that desire for hospitality with the implication for me to make some room. That, uh, the, the notion that hospitality is both beautiful and also has a cost, I think, is part of what we're going to look at today in Luke chapter 14. Um, we are going to look at hospitality, we're going to look at the beauty of it, but also the cost of it. In Luke 14, Jesus is at a feast. He's at a banquet. And there is a lot that happens in the Gospels over food. Uh, There are many instances where Jesus is reclining with friends or with sinners and tax collectors, or, as the case is in Luke 14, 
with Pharisees and religious leaders and lawyers. Uh, and it, one thing to pay attention to, this is just a, a general rule as you're reading the Gospels, is to pay attention to who's there. Pay attention to who's present in these banquets. Because a banquet, a feast in first century Palestine, uh, that told you a lot about a person. And it was meant to tell you a lot about a person. Right? People put a lot of stock in who they invited, where people sat. We'll, we'll get into some of that in a second. But uh, when you see Jesus at a feast, pay attention to who's there. It's not accidental. All right, so Luke 14 is, uh, we're not going to read the whole thing. I'm going to do my best to summarize what happens at this banquet, and then I'm going to read one of the parables that Jesus tells. So if you want to pull out your Bibles, uh, you can and follow along, but the, the part that I'm going to read, where, does it, where do we have it starting? Where do we... Yeah, I'm going to start before this. But So uh, it's a Sabbath. So there's certain rules, right? Certain laws of what you can and can't do on a Sabbath. He's invited to a feast at some Pharisee's house. And Luke gives us a little commentary, which he does every now and then. And he says that Jesus was being carefully watched, which gives you the sense that this wasn't just a very generous, this wasn't just a a generous invitation, but it was a bit of a trap, maybe. And uh, there is a man there who's suffering from abnormal bloating. And uh, and the Pharisees are watching. And Jesus, as he so often does in these moments, heals him. He miraculously heals this man, and he raises this question that he raises so often. uh, What is right to do on the Sabbath? Is it right to follow these laws that you've established, or is it right to heal, to give life? But then, the conversation moves on from that. And he notices how the guests are seating themselves at this banquet and how they often will seek out the places of honor, right? So if you were seated next to the host, that was a position of honor. That said something about who you were, how important you were, your place in society. He watches these people pick out these places of honor, and he says, don't do that. When you come to a feast, just sit in the lowest seat, and then if it's right, the the host will come and invite you to come and sit at the place of honor. Otherwise, what might happen is you sit in the place of honor and then someone more important than you comes in and you're going to have to be humiliated as you make your way down to the end of the table. And then he says uh, this very memorable line, for all those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. And then finally, he has some instructions uh, for what you do when you're inviting people to parties. He says, don't invite those that can repay you. Don't just invite the people that are kind of in your circle, that you know that if you invite them, well, they're going to invite you. Don't invite them. Invite the people that can't repay you, the people that have no chance of reciprocating back to you. Understand that those are the people that God wants you to invite to the parties. And understand this, that there's a different kind of economics in the kingdom of God, and you will be rewarded, uh, just not here on earth. You will be rewarded in the resurrection. So he's, he's observing all of this stuff, all of these kind of social laws and assumptions that are happening around this feast um, and, and making commentary on them. But you sense there's something deeper going on here. It's not just about who you do and don't invite. So do we have... Uh, I, may have I may have put the wrong passage up here. Do we have from 15 on? All right, great. I'm going to start reading. This is from verse 15. So when one of those at the table with him heard this, he said to Jesus, Blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. And Jesus replied, Let me tell you a story. A certain man was preparing a great banquet 
and invited many, many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, Come, everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I have just bought a field, and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I've just bought five yoke of oxen, and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. And still another said, I just got married, so I can't come. And the servant came back and reported this to his master. And then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the towns. Bring in the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you have ordered has been done, but there is still room. Then the master told his servant, go out to the roads and country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. And I tell you, not one of those who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. Lord, be our teacher this morning. As we look at feasting and banquet and hospitality customs that seem a little bit foreign to us, help us to make connections. Help us to see how hospitality works in our own lives. The beauty and the cost of it. Strengthen us with your spirit that we would go here changed by your power. Reflecting even just a little bit more today and this week, your image in this world. We ask this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. So Luke, uh, the author of this gospel, is a doctor. And he pays attention to these healing miracles. But in, in this passage, it's a little bit different. He kind of he mentions this healing and then quickly moves on. There's something else going on here that Luke wants to draw our attention to. I mean, it's miraculous, this healing. Let's not forget about it. But there's something else that Luke wants to draw our attention to. And it's, it's how this sort of host and guest relationship works. It's how hospitality works and how it could work in the kingdom of God, how it does work in the kingdom of God. You know, he's interested in the Pharisees' response or the opportunity that they have to respond to Jesus' invitation his instruction on hospitality and, feast, and feasting. Uh, one of the things that we have to remember here is that Luke is recording history. Like, he's, he's recording what happened in Jesus' life, but he's also writing to an audience. And he's writing to an audience that's removed a little bit from the immediate events of Jesus. He's writing to the early church. And so the early church was this community of rich and poor, of Jew and Gentile, of male and female, of people that wouldn't normally associate together, and, and, and they're creating something new, some new community, this new family, uh, and they're struggling, right? You don't have to read too much in the New Testament between Paul's letters or the book of Acts to understand that that was, that was hard. It was not easy. There was no model for how, what a community that was really, truly diverse like this, uh, what it looked like. Um, and so Luke is, is recording these events, but he said, oh, there's something in here for us. There's something in here about how to, be, um, how to be God's people together, how to be this new kind of community um, that, that we just did not have a paradigm for. We didn't have any category for how meals worked um, when you weren't primarily thinking of you know, the social implications of this meal or what people would think of you. 
right? Hospitality looks different in our culture than it did in first century Palestine. Um, I'm not sure that we think of our invitation list maybe in the same, with the same sense of specific hopes about, oh, if I invite this person, other people will think highly of me. But I do think that underneath, I mean, when we think of hospitality, I think that underneath some of what we think of in terms of laying out a spread for people, there might be a little bit of that concern for what others think that's underneath it. In the midst of this very particular uh, event, uh, Jesus helps connect this event to a vision for the kingdom of God, right? He tells this parable. And in this parable, there's this man who's got this great feast, and he invites these people, and he tells them it's ready, and they start making excuses, right? We're reminded of that guy who approached Jesus asking about the greatest commandments. Jesus, and Jesus said, well, what do you think? And he said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, yeah, it's, you're right, do these. And then Luke tells us that the man, seeking to justify himself, right, seeking to make an excuse, says, well, who is my neighbor? Here we have some, some actually, some pretty good excuses for not showing up to a, a, a party. The, the first two, the, the purchase of a field and the purchase of five oxen, are significant financial business endeavors uh, for someone in that time. You, you, normally, you'd have two oxen, just a team. That they would plow your field. That would be enough. But to have five oxen, is, uh, that's a significant financial investment, not something to be done lightly. Same with a field. Uh, and then, of course, you know, I just got married. Like, yeah, that, we celebrate marriages. That's good. You know, you should, you should take time to be married. But the, the point here is that all of these are excuses that remove these people from the opportunity to feast at the kingdom of God. They miss it. They miss something that's more important, which is intimacy with the one who has invited them to this feast. And then we see God's commitment to embrace those who are on the margins. Right? When those who are initially invited reject it, the, the person, running, the, the person uh, hosting the feast sends out his servants into the alleyways, into kind of the rough places in town, and says, bring in those that I didn't invite. Bring in the sinners, the tax collectors, the prostitutes. And they do that. And still there's room. And so then uh, he sends the servants outside of the city walls into the countryside. So there's this sense in which uh, there's, the, there's the respectable people who are first invited. The people that you would expect to be invited to a feast are invited. And they make excuses. They don't show. So then it's the people who are not respectable. The, those that are unclean. The people that are on the margins who are invited. And then it's the folks outside of the city walls. It's the nations. It's the Gentiles. So you have this sense of the ever-expanding invitation to this feast, and that there's no one on the face of the earth who is not invited. As I said earlier, Luke's writing this to the early church, where there's this mishmash of, uh, of cultures and of uh, men and women and, and rich and poor that, that would not have normally associated with each other, and yet they're coming together... They're, hold, they're sharing things with each other. We, we read in the book of Acts, right? They're, they're holding property in common. They're sharing with those that have needs. They're being woven into this new family. This is brother and sister becomes the operative title for the people that are in God's family. Uh, as Paul starts to talk about baptism, which was the entry into God's family, he starts to use this language of adoption. 
right? Adoption becomes this big theme for how we understand what it is to be part of God's family, to be part of the church. So I have a moment of congregational participation here. I want you to turn to someone on your left and your right, look them in the eye, and say, you're my family. Try it. (laughs) Some of you, that's very literally true because you're married. So you need to find someone to lock eyes with who you're not married to. You are my family. That's a powerful thing. Oh, okay, sorry. Carry on. You got me. You got... Good. Are we good? Can we Okay. <laughs> I want to make sure everybody got a chance to do that. Um, this is one of the radical implications of the gospel. Is this re- the, the brand new thing that God is making in the world through his church, this new family. God's family. So there are some practical implications, obviously, for uh, understanding feasting and hospitality. But uh, there's also a lot that we can learn about God from this. In fact, you can read Luke's entire gospel through the lens of hospitality. Like, what is Luke saying? What is God saying through Luke's gospel to us about hospitality? And one of the first things that we see is that there's this question about who is going to be hospitable towards Christ. Who is going to make room in their heart and in their life for Jesus? Who is going to extend hospitality to him? Right? It's this vision of Christ as the stranger in our midst. Christ as the visitor, the incarnation, God who took on flesh coming to visit the earth. Will people make room for him? And early on in the birth narrative, we see examples of positive and negative examples of that, right? Uh, Joseph and Mary go to Bethlehem and we're told that there was no room for them in the guest house. And so from the very beginning, from Jesus' birth, there's this experience of not being shown hospitality. And yet, of course, with the, the shepherds and the magi and others early on, there's people that come out of their way to make room for Christ in their lives. Early in Jesus' life, I, I, he, he, he's in Nazareth, his hometown. He goes to the synagogue he reads the, from Isaiah and kind of defines his mission, right? To, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim good news to the poor, release for the captives. And immediately after that, um, he is rejected and run out of town. And so this, this sense of uh, this question of who, who here on earth will make room for Christ? Who will extend hospitality to this visitor, this one who has come to visit us? But as we read through the gospel, uh, there's a transition that happens. There's a change that takes place. And all of a sudden we realize that's still a good question, but there's an even deeper question. And the deeper question is this. uh, How do we understand a God who has made room for us? It is actually God who in Christ is extending hospitality to us, opening room for us in the kingdom of God. And we start to see that there is a cost. And the cost for God to extend hospitality to us is his son, who he freely gave to die on the cross for us, to suffer on our behalf, that there would be room for us in the kingdom of God. There's also a cost to making room in your life for Jesus, right? Right after, uh, immediately after this uh, scene at the, at the feast, at the banquet, 
Um, Jesus teaches his disciples about the cost of discipleship. Right? That there is a cost to creating room in our lives for Christ. Following Christ is not something we can just dabble with, right? It, it, it takes everything. It takes surrender. So in this, in this parable, in this scene about feasting and about hospitality, we see certainly that God cares for those on the margins. And we see that going back to Luke 4, to Jesus' mission statement about, I've come for this purpose, to preach good news to the poor. Release for the captives, right? This is at the heart of what Jesus' ministry is. And we start to see that actually he's, he's talking about us, right? Even those, those of us who might look at our lives in comparison with the world and say, no, I have, I'm, I'm well off. You know, I have what I need. We recognize in Christ's invitation our own, um, our own lack, <laughs> that we actually are those who are poor, who are bound and need to be released, We also see that God is committed to throwing a party. He is committed to filling his house and to inviting everyone. Right? That God delights in this. That this is, there's something that we see of the nature of the kingdom of God. We sang uh, this song, Surely Goodness and Mercy, the first song we sang this morning. It's taken from the end of Psalm 23, but it's this vision right, of, of a feast prepared for us. With a cup that cannot hold all the goodness that God wants to give us. God delights in blessing us with love, overflowing with love, peace, and joy. This is the nature of the feast, of what God wants to give us. We also see that God is an inviter. God initiates, and we are simply responding to his invitation. This is, this is grace, right? It's not that we uh, are of some sort of stature or capability that God's lucky to have us at his party, right? That's not the case at all, but rather God has searched us out in the alleyways, in the country lanes, and he has invited us in. I love the language of invitation because it, it's gracious, but it also tells me that God does not force or coerce he invites, and he woos. That is how God draws us to himself. So the question for us is, will we respond? That's one of those fundamental questions of hospitality in this gospel, is will we respond to this gracious invitation? Certainly when it comes to our salvation, to saying, yes, I need you, Lord, forgive my sins, I need you. But even in the day-to-day moments of our lives, God is speaking to us, inviting us into his kingdom, inviting us to see that's set before us, even though we're so blind to it sometimes, that uh, there's all these good things he wants to give us in the everyday moments of our lives, this love, peace, and joy. Hospitality has been a big word for us uh, in this community, uh, in particular with how we have thought of the green bean. Uh, Hospitality is... I would say, for those of us that have been around, like that's synonymous with the green bean. That's why the green bean has existed, was that it was a tool for us to extend hospitality to others. Uh, and we often quoted this uh, line from Henry Nouwen, where he talked about uh, what hospitality is and what it's not. And what it's not is uh, a forced change, right? This is where uh, God, God doesn't force change upon people. Um, that's not what hospitality is about, but it's about creating a space where change can take place. 
Hospitality is about creating a space where change can take place. And that has driven us uh, in our work in and through the green bean. And there has been some concern expressed that as the green bean is now closed, that we might forget how to be hospitable people. That we might instead kind of turn inwardly on ourselves and say, like, well, what's just most comfortable for us? Um, And I want to suggest that though there may be a little bit of danger in there, rather, what I see happening is that we've had 14 years of practicing radical hospitality through a particular venue, through a particular space and place, so that now we understand what it is to offer this kind of radical hospitality to everyone in our lives, not just those that come into the green beam, but to the people that we encounter through work, to our literal neighbors who live around where we live, to the other parents of the kids that we meet at drop-off every morning at school, the people that we ride the bus with, that we've had practice now uh, understanding the value of hospitality, of making room for others, right? To quote from Pete's Dragon. That it takes, there's some cost to it. Uh, we've experienced that over the last 14 years. This has not been an easy endeavor. And I don't think that we should imagine moving forward that our continued ministry of hospitality should necessarily be easy. But I love that we've had 14 years of practice, of training, so that now, whether there's something that we decide to do together, and we come to the town hall in a couple of weeks, so we're going to talk about some of the possibilities of things that we might do together. Um, but just as we live our lives, as we go to work, as we love our neighbors, that we would understand that value of radical hospitality and know a little bit better about how to express it in this world. So there are some practical implications here, right? One of them is just looking at our gatherings, looking at our parties, looking at our dinners. And if all of our parties and our dinners and all of our gatherings kind of look like us, we might have some hard questions to ask about, are we living into the calling that God's given us? Are we living into his vision for what hospitality looks like? Can we be those servants who are sent out into the alleys into the country lanes, into all of the different places in this city um, with the good news that God has made room for everyone, that God has invited everyone to his feast. And I think one of the most profound ways to do that is by actually eating and feasting with people. Like, I'm not sure if there's a better place for people to get a taste of the kingdom of God than um, at our dinners and in our gatherings. And you don't have to have a lot to do that, right? That's not a function of having, you know, matching silverware and, you know, very pretty, I don't know, what else goes with plates? Napkins? If you use napkins. Right? It's not a function of having a really sweet setup. Um, it's a function of your heart. Uh, some of the most generous activity in our community has been done by some of those with the least resources. And it is inspiring to me, and it makes me want to extend generosity and hospitality far beyond those that I, uh, you know, maybe most naturally comfortable with. I want to see this church grow. That's another thing that I see in here, is that there is always room in God's kingdom. There's always room for more here in this church. And I think that's, that's one of the things that I long to see, is all of us, each one of us, reaching out to different people that we know and inviting them 
saying, come and see, come and taste and see that the Lord is good, that he loves you, that he's made room for you. And all of this, all of this comes to us, or, or, or we live all of this out from this understanding that first and foremost, it's God who has made room for us. We refer to this as the Lord's table or the Lord's feast, even. That this reminds us that first and foremost, God has created room for us in his kingdom. He's created room, and it reminds us of the cost of God's hospitality. That he was willing to give his only son to make room for us in his kingdom. And so we come, as Jesus suggests, in humility to this feast. Knowing that it's just grace alone. It's just grace alone.